Would you please open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, chapter 9. Romans, chapter 9. On Sunday mornings, we've been studying the book of Acts. However, this morning, I would like us to consider the biblical teaching regarding the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Divine sovereignty and man's responsibility. In our adult Sunday school class, we began studying J.I. Packer's very helpful little book, but classic book, entitled Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, which deals with this very subject. And I hope today's message might encourage some of you to begin attending that class if you haven't. But that's not the reason I'm, I'm addressing this subject. Some of you may not be able to be there, and I thought it would be a profitable subject for all of us to consider again. We are a Reformed Baptist church which means that as Reformed, we one of our, our primary distinctives is that we believe and insist that God is to be known and worshipped as a sovereign God. We believe the Bible teaches this from Genesis to Revelation. And yet one of the pitfalls and serious doctrinal and practical errors we can fall into is that we can lose sight of one or the other of these equally important biblical truths. And that is that man is a morally free agent who is fully responsible for his actions and will be held accountable by God for his every action, word, and thought. And yet, at the same time, God is absolutely sovereign. These two truths are both taught in the Bible. And we must fully embrace both of them if we are to be thoroughly biblical in our thinking about God and about ourselves. The tendency is to look at one of these two truths and throw up our hands and say one of them has to go. They can't possibly exist together. Now, I had you turn to Romans chapter 9 because here the Apostle Paul addresses this very issue. He's been expounding the great theme in this chapter of God's sovereignty and salvation. Uh, He says that in verse 18, uh, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills and whom and who uh, whom he wills, he hardens speaking of God's sovereignty and salvation and even in reprobation. So that's a very clear thing that he brings out. In fact, uh, he addresses the theme of God's sovereignty so clearly and so forcefully that many Christians don't even want to turn to this passage unless they believe these doctrines. I remember a a young pastor uh, who had come to understand these doctrines. He wanted to preach them to his church, but he wasn't ready to go there yet. So he just, for the scripture reading, without comment, just read Romans chapter 9. And many of the people in the congregation got very, very upset with him. He just read God's word. They didn't want to hear that because it was so clear. We don't believe that. We don't believe that here. That's what the Bible teaches right here. And so they didn't want to hear it. 
But Paul, in dealing with God's absolute sovereignty that is not of him who runs, nor of him who, not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy, he anticipates and raises the objection that many will undoubtedly have. And that is, in verse 19, will you, then say, you will then say, or you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? There's the objection. If you've never heard that objection, then you've not clearly talked about it to anyone. <laughs> because those who don't understand it or don't believe it, that's one of the first objections. Is How can he find fault? If God is sovereign, everything happens according to his will, then how can he blame me for what I do? I'm just fulfilling his plan. I'm fulfilling his will. Well, I think that summarizes the objection to the absolute sovereignty of God as well as anyone. But notice Paul's answer in verses 20 and 21. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel to honor and another for dishonor. What you notice is lacking in this, uh, this answer to the objection is he doesn't back off from the sovereignty of God. In fact, he plows straight ahead with it. He likens God to a potter. And I've done some pottery many, many years ago with a wheel and all of that and, and, uh, the potter has power over the clay, at least once you get the hang of it. <laughs> if you've ever done pottery before, you don't have the hang of it. Sometimes the clay has power over the potter. I'll never forget one time my wife and I, she was learning how to do pottery as well. I was taking it in college, but the professor let us come there when it was all closed up and we could uh, do pottery together. And, and so we did late at night after she got off work. And... Uh, she was just learning as well, and, and she's going along with the pottery, and, and something slipped, and something in her head went right in the bucket of water <laughs> beside it. But uh, that shows how the clay has power. But, uh, but God, of course, would be like the master potter. He can make any kind of vessel he wants. He can make it as thin or as, as thick as he wants, as high or as low as he wants. He can do whatever he wants, one vessel for this, one vessel for that. And that's what he's saying. This is God. But he says regarding our objection, who are you, O man, to reply against God? Paul doesn't jettison one truth to establish another. He doesn't backpedal the sovereignty of God, nor does he relinquish man's responsibility for his actions. God does find fault. He holds men accountable for their actions and particularly for their rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are responsible. <clears throat> these two truths are taught in the Bible. Now, let me just reiterate these truths again. The first one is that God is a sovereign God. Now, children, the word sovereign means supreme power and authority. Uh, you know, in the home, you've got different levels of authority. You've got the children, you've got the parents, you've got the wife and then the husband. And I remember as a child, uh, as a young 
child, not not too old, not a teenager yet, but uh, when my parents would leave, we would argue who's in charge. And uh, I finally, I talked to my parents ahead of time. I said, can I be the captain? Because that was always, who's the captain when they're gone? And uh, so uh, they said, okay, you can be the captain. Well, I'm just the middle child, and so I had two older brothers. And as soon as they left, I said, they said, I could be captain. My oldest brother said, well, that's okay. I'm the, I'm the general. So <laughs> uh, that didn't work out. But you have these levels of authority. But we're talking about the highest authority, the supreme power and authority. Supreme, that's what it means. The highest or the greatest. Kings have sometimes adopted this title of sovereign. If you look in the King James Bible, at least used to be, the preface of it, it would speak about the sovereign King James. Some of our forethought fathers strongly objected to this because they knew and believed that no earthly king is the highest supreme ruler. The slogan of the War of Independence was this, we serve no sovereign here. God is the one who is sovereign. There's one who is infinitely above all others, above any earthly monarch, and he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You remember King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. Uh, he was a great king, the great king of Babylon, and he had built such an empire and had these hanging gardens of Babylon. Everything was beautiful. One of the uh, one of the wonders of the world. And he began to take great pride in in how uh, how high he had achieved in his kingdom. And uh, and God reduced him to a beast of the field, literally, where he was out in the field. His hair grew long. His nails grew long. He was like one of the cattle. He had lost his mind. Until God restored his, his mind, his reason to him again. And he reduced him to this until he said, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. And it wasn't until he, his reason was restored and he realized and believed that God was king. That He was the one and that He does according to His will in the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stop Him. Well, that's what God, He's the sovereign of all. And His sovereignty extends over everything. All of the actions of men. He's absolutely sovereign. No one is outside of His control. Now, men do disobey God. That's another issue, though. But... But God is still sovereign over their wicked acts. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, it says that He uh, does, He works all things after the counsel of His will. So when we speak of God being a sovereign God, we're not just using high flute and language or, or language that just makes us feel good. No, we mean that God, not man, is king. And that as the absolute king, he rules his universe according to his will. Everything that happens, good or evil, happens according to his sovereign will. And I realize there are problems with that. There are questions you would have regarding that. But nonetheless, God is sovereign over everything. Says he even uses the wrath of man to praise him. 
He does everything. No one, Nebuchadnezzar said, can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So that's the first truth. God is absolutely sovereign. But the second truth is that man is a morally free agent who is fully responsible for his actions and will be held accountable by God for those actions, every action, every word, every thought. That is, God holds them account, uh, accountable even though by their actions they accomplish His sovereign purposes. Now that's a problem. Men and devils do exactly what they want to do. They are free moral agents. And yet, in their so doing, they fulfill the perfect will of God. Now that's a heavy truth. But that's something that's taught throughout the Scriptures. We know man is held accountable because God has designed a place called hell in which He will cast the unbelieving and and the liars and those who have disregarded Him. He holds them accountable for their actions. John Calvin said, Whatever is attempted by men or by Satan himself, God still holds the helm in order to turn all their attempts to the execution of His judgments. You see, God is a God who has a plan. That plan extends all the way back into eternity before He created anything. Before He created the worlds, before He created the angels, before He created man, He had a plan. A perfect plan. And He's executing that plan. He executed all the way through creation, all the way through the history of this world, all the way till the day of judgment. He is executing His plan perfectly. Perfectly. Flawlessly. But I don't understand it. I didn't think you would. I certainly don't. <laughs> I don't understand how God can be so, can be sovereign over everything and yet hold us accountable. And by the way, let me just make this one uh, clarification here. When I say that man is a morally free agent, I do not mean that he has a free will in the sense that he can do anything. No man can do anything anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but I do mean man does what he wants to do. He's choosing. He's making those decisions. He's acting upon those decisions He's a free moral agent. God isn't making him do those things. He's not twisting his arm. He's not doing violence to their will. They are acting according to their desires. But he holds them accountable. And yet, all the while they are working out what they want to do, they are actually doing what God has planned and purposed. The biblical teaching is what the framers of the confession of our confession of faith called the high mystery of predestination. We began talking about that a bit in Sunday school this morning. It's a mystery. Uh, A young seminary student once said to his professor, I won't believe anything that I can't understand. To which the professor wisely replied, then young man, your creed will be the shortest I know. 
By that he meant that the Bible and the Christian faith are full of things we do not understand. That's what a mystery is. A mystery is something we don't understand. We don't know it. There are many mysteries in the Bible. We looked at that this morning in Sunday school. The doctrine of the Holy Trinity is a mystery. How can God be one in essence and three in persons? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet there's one God. The the very attributes of God are, are full of mystery. You begin thinking of any one of God's attributes and the wheels of your mind start spinning. You, you don't grasp it. You, you can apprehend it, as I said this morning, uh, in some ways, parts of it, but you can never fully understand it. There's mystery surrounding God's attributes. There's some mystery surrounding God's providence. That's what we just sung about in, in uh, that, that hymn. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. Uh, the, the fact of God's eternity, that he has always existed. You try to figure that one out and you'll find you don't understand it. Why do you believe it then? Because the Bible teaches it. And that's our sole authority for all faith and practice, whether we understand it or not. And if you want to have a faith that you understand everything, it, I guarantee it will not be the biblical faith. You, you look at the at the incarnation that that God became a man and dwelt among us. You won't figure that out. That that Jesus Christ is both God and man. He is fully God and fully man. That's a mystery. Well, in the time remaining, I want us to look at a few of the many examples in the Bible of the absolute sovereignty of God and the freedom uh, and accountability of man for his actions. And the first thing I want to point to is simply the Scriptures themselves. What is the Bible? It's the Word of God. What do you mean it's the Word of God? Well, I'll tell you what the Bible means by it being the Word of God. It means that all Scripture, as Paul says, In 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God inspired it. Did He inspire parts of it? No, we believe He inspired all of it. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We believe in the verbal, plenary inspiration of God. Verbal means every word. Plenary means all of it. It's all inspired, down to the words. They're inspired of God. Uh, Peter describes it in this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, verse 20. He says, uh, regarding prophecy of Scripture, he says in verse 21, No prophecy ever came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Well, we have the Scriptures. They're the project of God's inspiration but they are also the product of man's writing. Men wrote it. Well, how did, how did God inspire it? How did he uh, move them? Uh, was it by dictation? He certainly didn't write it out with his finger like he did the Ten Commandments in the, in the tablets of stone. But God 
didn't do it by dictation. I've heard one preacher many years ago say that. I believe that, that the, the men who wrote the Bible, God was telling them what to write, and they were just writing it down. But if you read Scripture, you see that's not what's going on here. Uh, but the end result was as effectively as if that's what happened. As if he had dictated, but he didn't dictate it. He so worked in them and moved in them. <clears throat> and you look in the book of Luke, chapter 1. We, we had to do this when we began studying the, the book of Acts. Uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke and he wrote the book of Acts. But in the book of Luke, his opening words are these. He's writing to someone by the name of Theophilus. And he says, Inasmuch as has taken, uh, I have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us. He's talking about the life of Christ, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. Uh, just as he chose, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all the things from, from the very first, to write to you in an orderly account, most ex excellent Theophilus. So he, Luke wasn't there seeing these things, but he interviewed those who were eyewitnesses. No doubt he interviewed Peter and John and others and began to ask them. Uh, he interviewed Paul. He was with Paul in certain writing, in certain times in the book of Acts. And so he's gathering the information together as a researcher would. And he writes it all down. But we believe that he was doing all these things. And yet at the same time, God was directing him. God was moving him as the wind drives the sail in the, in the sailboat and moves it across the water. God was moving them. And yet they're thinking. They're having experiences. They're having conversations. They're gathering information. And so God was using them and their will. But in the end, we have God's holy word. So the Bible itself is a, is a wonderful example of God's sovereignty and guiding every word and yet using men with their various personalities and styles and all of this. And they're coming together and they're writing books over many years, centuries. And yet we have the, the infallible, inspired word of God. But then as we go back into the history of the Old Testament, we look at God's covenant with Abraham. Now, I'll give you the passage, but we're just not going to have time to flip to all of these passages. But in Genesis chapter 12, when God came to Abraham and he told him to get out of the country from your family and from your father's house and go to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. And so he did. Out of these two, Abram and Sarah, God brought forth a nation. Now, I, I can't even, my, my little mind couldn't even think of all the various circumstances and decisions and things that would happen to bring this about. But God did this. And they went from two people to millions to a nation to think of how God unfolded that in his sovereign plan is, is unfathomable almost. But God used their decisions. And you read through the Old Testament in the life of Abraham and you saw mistakes and you saw sins and you saw this and that. And yet God was continuing to work and even using those mistakes and those sins to 
bring about his plan of making from him a great nation. And you think of Isaac being born and and then from Isaac came uh, Esau and Jacob. And the Lord came to uh, to Rebecca, you remember, and told her that two nations when she was pregnant with the two Jacob and Esau, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other and the older shall serve the younger. Now, who was the older? Esau. He was the firstborn of the twins. And so in that day and in that culture and all that, the firstborn was the one to receive the blessings. And so you think of how this came about, that Esau served Jacob and Jacob began to outshine Esau in the blessings of God. But look how many things happened. It's unfathomable to imagine the sins of of, of uh, Jacob and Rebekah as they uh, plotted together how Jacob might receive the blessing. It was it was deception. And then Esau, how he gave up his birthright. He gave up his birthright for a a, a pot of stew. He was came back from hunting and he was hungry and Jacob had made this stew and and uh, he said, well, I'll give you the stew if you give me your birthright. And he was so hungry, he sold him his birthright. So now Jacob is the one who will receive the blessing from his father, uh, uh, from his father and from his father, Isaac. And so uh, he's uh, it, it, but here's what in Hebrews chapter 12 Here's what it says about Esau. He warns us, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. So Esau, who was the firstborn who should have received the blessing, he gave it to his younger brother. And his younger brother received it. That's so amazing because that's exactly what God said would happen. God said the older shall serve the younger. It was part of God's plan. His eternal plan. God wasn't making it up as he goes. It was part of his eternal plan. What an amazing thing. God also, go back back to Abraham, he promised him something else. You remember that time he made that covenant with Abraham and had him uh, cut the uh, animals in half and lay them in a certain way. And then he said, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them and they will afflict them 400 years. Of course, he's talking about their enslavement in Egypt. God said this to Abraham. Many, many, many years before it actually took place. Well, how did it take place? Well, Joseph, you remember. Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob. The youngest son of Jacob. Or one of the younger sons of Jacob. Uh, you remember what Jacob, or what Joseph did and how he got to Egypt? It was through the treachery of his brothers. His brothers hated him. His father loved him and maybe more than he should have loved him. But all of these things were working together to bring about God's plan. And God's plan is that they would be in Egypt for 400 years and he would bring them out of Egypt with a strong and mighty arm. 
bring them out of Egypt. But how would they get there? Because his brothers hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. And finally, they sold him into slavery. They were going to kill him until one of the brothers spoke up and said, we can't kill him. He's our brother. Let's sell him instead. Oh, they didn't have any compassion at all, but they sold their brother into slavery. And then God, with his mighty hand and all that, you read it, it's amazing what's going on. And it didn't happen by chance. And so many things happened as a result of the sinful actions of men. And yet all the while, they were carrying out God's sovereign plan. And so they did. Um, Mr. Fuller said that there's never been a transaction in which human passions, envy, and envy, hatred, revenge, cupidity, I'm not sure what that exactly means, but were more confessedly the sole ruling cause and motive from first to last. They didn't have a good intention in it all. They didn't want, they wanted to get rid of their brother. They couldn't stand that their father loved him more than them. Even Stephen, when he's preaching there before he was martyred, he said, and the patriarchs, these twelve sons of Jacob, they became envious and sold Joseph into Egypt. That's exactly what God said was going to happen. That was part of his plan. Not that God looked down through the tunnel of time and saw that it would happen, but that God purposed for it to happen. This would be a monument of God's great deliverance from Egypt. And then you turn over to Genesis chapter 50. And you remember the story when there was a famine in the land and, and the, Jacob sent his sons to Egypt because that was the only place you could buy grain. And lo and behold, it was Joseph who had the power to give out the grain. If you wanted grain... You had to go to Joseph. And so his brothers, not knowing it was Joseph, went to get grain. And he revealed himself that it's Joseph. And they were afraid because they knew what they had done. And here's the answer of Joseph. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You see how the sovereignty of God is there? God meant it. Not that God just saw it was going to happen and said, okay. God meant it. It was His purpose. It was His plan. Their plan was evil. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good to bring about what's happened today. And we could look at many other things. We could look at how God used the king of Assyria in Isaiah chapter 10. We don't have time to look at that, but we could look there and we see it. Oftentimes, God would use wicked kings and nations to be instruments to chasten his rebellious people. Uh, he would use them called the rod of his anger. Assyria, the rod of my anger. They weren't intending to help God out by chastening God's people. They were there to plunder and destroy. They were just like all the other kings. They saw an opportunity and a nation they could conquer, and they did. God let them conquer them. But it was all within God's purpose. You are the rod of my anger. Then after they did it, you know what God did? He punished them for it. (laughs) He punished Assyria for chastening his people, even though that's what God wanted them to do. God raised them up for that very purpose, 
to be the rod of his anger and then punish them for it. Thomas Watson said that God has a hand in the action where sin is, but no hand in the sin of the action. Because here's another qualification we need to always bring into this this whole matter of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is that God is neither the author or approver of sin. How do we know that? Because the Bible says so. We can't figure out how he's not the author and approver of sin, but we know that he's not because we know that he's holy. And we know that he said he'll never tempt anyone. God didn't force Assyria to do anything. He let them do exactly what they wanted to do. But what they wanted to do, which was sinful, is what God used to accomplish his purposes. But we see the clearest example of the wicked acts of men accomplishing God's purposes in the very death of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was nothing more certain than that Jesus Christ came into this world to die. He came to die a cruel death on the cross. He's called by John the Baptist uh, the Lamb of God. He was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, the Bible says. The Lamb that would be offered for the sins of His people. That was God's plan. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And there was only one way He could do it, by dying a cruel death on the cross. That was God's plan. God prophesied of it hundreds of years before. You look at the betrayal of of Judas when he betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said it would be better for that man never to have been born. He'll be held accountable for what he did. And yet he was fulfilling God's purposes. Not as the musical, if any of you even remember this musical, but when I was young, the the musical came out, Jesus Christ Superstar. And they portrayed the whole life and death of the Lord Jesus, but not in a truly biblical way. But Judas is seen after he has betrayed innocent blood. And he cries out, I've been used. And you knew it all the time. He's singing and speaking to God. God, I'll never know why you chose me for your crime, your foul, bloody crime. As though he was unwilling in the whole matter. And that he was simply caught up in the, the vortex of God's sovereign plan and merely fulfilling his wishes, though he really didn't want to. That's not the way it was at all. No violence was ever offered to his will or to any creature. When Judas betrayed the Lord, he was doing exactly what he wanted to do. He did it for money and he was greedy. And we see that greed throughout his life popping up. But he did it because he wanted to. And yet, when he betrayed our Lord, he was doing exactly what God had purposed to happen. And then you look at the crucifixion itself. If ever a a deed was perpetrated by cruel and relentless hatred and malignity, it was the murder of that innocent Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts 2.23, though, Peter says that he, Jesus, 
was delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. But then he turns to the Jews who had committed this very thing in delivering him up. He says, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put him to death. And we've seen that in our study of Acts, that when they speak of the death of Christ, they point to those who delivered him up. And yet they're also speaking of God fulfilling his purposes in delivering him up. In Acts chapter 3, Peter says, You denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead among whom we are witnesses. They were fulfilling God's plan. And yet God holds those who fulfilled the plan as wicked as it was. He holds them accountable. Both of these truths are taught in Scripture. Both must be received. We should never pit these two truths together. We should never cancel one out for the other. God is absolutely sovereign and man is accountable for his actions. And we think of the application of what, what should this mean to us? Well, first of all, it should produce in us Humility. The tendency is to look at both of these truths and say, one has to go, you know, I, I can't figure that out. So if I can't figure it out, it's not worth considering. Or a lot of people talk about, oh, that Calvinistic controversy or oh, those bunch of Calvinists, they're still talking about, no, we ought to humbly receive it. It shouldn't embarrass us to admit that we don't understand everything about God. Isaiah 55.9 says, as the, high, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. It should humble us that we don't have it all figured out. John Calvin said, how it was that God, by His foreknowledge and decree, ordained what should take place respecting man, and yet so ordained it, without himself being in the least a participator of the fault, or being at all the author or approver of the transgression, how this was, I repeat, is a secret manifestly far too deep to be penetrated by the human mind, nor am I ashamed to confess our ignorance. And far be it from any of the faithful to be ashamed to confess his ignorance of that which the Lord envelops in the blaze of His own inaccessible light. We should be humble that we don't understand these things. If they're taught in the Bible, now that's always the prerequisite. If it's in the Bible and we don't get it, we study harder, but we come to the end where there's no answer, we have to bow and worship and thank Him for it. To be humble. But secondly, it should cause us to trust Him. When we encounter these things that we don't understand. John Murray had a wonderful point on this regarding trusting God. He said, the humble Christian is content to contain these unresolved problems. You notice I'm not giving you a resolution to the problems. I've just been stating them. 
I've been saying them clear. I've been stating them boldly and, and, and forcefully. But I'm not giving you a resolution to them. Murray said they do not disturb the Christian's peace of mind because in the last analysis, the ground of all his peace of mind is the conviction of the sovereignty, justice, and goodness of God. What he cannot resolve, he believes God does. That God knows. It is is the apex of Christian piety to trust in God. Just as it is also the foundation to say, I do not know, but I I do know that God does. Christian piety leaves unresolved problems in the hand of God, remembering that if we knew all, then we would be as God and worship and adoration would be at an end. And I would add, faith would be at an end. You wouldn't have to have faith. You wouldn't have to walk by faith. You would understand it all. But Murray said, clouds and darkness are around him, but justice and judgment are the habitation of his throne. But then thirdly, regarding these truths, we need to always find ourselves obeying the Lord. Never allow the doctrine of the sovereignty of God to become an excuse for disobedience. I heard someone say, well, if I believe that about God's sovereignty, that whatever's going to, whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved, and whoever wasn't, wasn't, I wouldn't go out and witness at all. And we might reply, yes, but God's also predestined to witness. He said, well, God predestined me to watch television tonight, and that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> if I believed in that kind of predestination, I wouldn't even look both ways before I crossed the street. Well, then you would be living in complete disobedience to God. Because God never tells us to be careless. He never tells us that we don't have to obey Him. No, we trust and obey. We trust that He is God, that He knows what's going on, that He's in control. And we obey Him. We follow Him. We don't neglect things because we don't understand them. We see that it's very clear that we're to evangelize, that we are to tell the world. We're to be lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We are to, to let others know of the good news of the Gospel. We can't have an excuse not to because we don't understand a deep doctrine, a dark that's shrouded with darkness. But we do understand clear commands and we need to follow those. That's why that hymn, Trust and Obey, sounds so simple, but it's really the truth. We trust and obey. We do what He says, whether we get it or not. In fact, we're living in a generation that they go, if it doesn't make sense to them, they're not going to follow it, even professing Christians. Regarding living together out of, out of, outside of marriage, it doesn't make sense. It seems to make more sense to live together and you get to know each other, see if you're compatible. That makes sense. Well, that might make sense to you, but what does God's Word say? Flee fornication. You see, we need to do that with all of God's commands, all of His Word. You obey it whether you understand it or not. Now, God doesn't treat us like we're, we're dogs or something or trained to do a trick. We're rational beings and He explains things to us. But there are many things that are beyond our, our capacity. 
to understand. And with those things, we need to follow His Word in the, in the most simple, childlike way. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So we see the Bible teaches these truths. That God has ordained whatsoever comes to pass. And yet He holds us accountable for our actions. And the Bible also holds us accountable for believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. We didn't have time to go to it, but in Matthew chapter 11, where the Lord Jesus is, is thanking the Father. I thank You, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent. Hidden these things from the wise and prudent, but have revealed them to babes. It's in God's prerogative to hide and to reveal. God is sovereign in the dispensation and the dispensing of His grace. And then Jesus turns right around and says, Come, come unto me all you are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. That's our responsibility. To come to Him, to believe in Him. So I, I need to figure out, am I an elect or not? No, you don't. And you will never figure. How would you possibly figure that out? But what you can understand is a simple invitation Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Come unto me, all your weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. You can understand that. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. That's your responsibility. That's my responsibility. To follow Him like little children. And may the Lord give us that grace not to be so high-minded that we think we have to have everything figured out. No, we need to believe the Bible whether we figure it out or not. Let's pray.